live in a city that enjoys peace and quiet and nobody, nobody likes a troublemaker at all. Uh, we know that because um, people in our city and even in our culture as a whole uh, talk about troublemakers. Uh, troublemakers are, if we could have the next slide, thanks, the, the talk of the city's media. For example, the Evening News and Edinburgh Spotlight on Twitter, they ran a story this past week with some uh, thieves who ran off with a poppy tin on Armistice Day. Why? Why be bothered about that? Well, because thieves are troublemakers. That's not what our city is all about, is what that report says. Troublemakers are not just the talk of the city's media, they're the talk of the city's employees. So drivers of Lothian buses complained of crowds on George Street last week just because some guy called George Clooney decides to go to Tiger Lily for lunch. They think he's a troublemaker and they're not happy. Ask any bus driver on that route. Society does not look kindly on troublemakers. Now here's why this might be a problem for Christians. Christians are often viewed by society as troublemakers. Troublemakers. They're viewed that way, not just today, not just here, but across the world and throughout history. Society has for many years enjoyed pointing the finger of blame at all, for all sorts of things at Christians. Everything from every war that's ever happened to cows dying on fireworks night. Do you see, see this in the Dundee Courier this week? Baptist rockets killed Dundee cow. That is the best headline I've seen since Celtic were beaten by Inverness Cali. Super Cali go ballistic Celtic are atrocious. Remember that one? Anyway, I think this one goes to number one for me just because it's got Baptist in it. So the Dundee Courier run this front page story... Baptist fireworks kills Dundee cow. Now, what happened? Okay, last weekend, some people from Broughty Ferry Baptist Church had a firework display. The next morning, a nearby farmer found one of his cows dead in the field. No need to bring in Sherlock Holmes. It was clear what had happened. The Christians killed it. Because they're troublemakers. You know, they had just fired a rocket too close to its head and it freaked out and ran into a fence or something like that. They are troublemakers, after all. I suppose on a more serious note, certain groups in the UK are convinced and vocal, are vocal about Christians being troublemakers. If if only Christianity was snuffed out, they say, such as the secular society, these people are creating havoc with their teaching, they're disturbing our peace, our society would be a million times better without these troublemakers. Well, we've heard that kind of thing, not only maybe from our friends or throughout history, but also in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, Christians were accused of being troublemakers there when Peter and John were brought before the religious leaders of the day to give an account for what they've been doing. They say, you've filled this city with your teaching, troublemakers. And then in Acts 17, we saw as Paul and Silas took the gospel into Thessalonica, The report from the the riotous mob is that these men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. Troublemakers, these Christians. But is this a valid accusation? 
So is the, is the accusation that Christians are troublemakers, is, is it valid for the farmer to say that? Is it valid for the Scottish secular society to say that? Is it valid for anybody that you meet in the city, whether at work or school or uni or whatever? Is it valid for people to say that Christians are troublemakers? Well, I think Acts 19, 21-41 really helps us answer this question. And we've got two main points tonight. First of all, this unavoidable clash with the city's idolatry, that's verses 21 to 28. And secondly, the irreproachable manner of a Christian witness, verse 29 to 41. Let's go with point one. It's a good place to start. Verse 21 to 28, the unavoidable clash with the city's idolatry. So verse 24 introduces us to a guy called Demetrius. He's a silversmith in Ephesus. And Ephesus, as I mentioned last week, is basically... uh, a magnet city for trade and tourism in what's, what's now modern-day Turkey, I suppose. And by far the biggest attraction in that region was the Temple of Artemis. At that time, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It sat proudly, I suppose like Edinburgh Castle, on top of a hill, dominating the skyline for literally hundreds of miles around. And people came to Ephesus to see the temple, but they also came to worship Artemis. To see her statue. And even as the the city official mentioned later on in the chapter, the legend has it that this statue of Artemis was carved out of a meteorite that fell from the sky. And as Paul mentioned this morning, it was as if the very substance of Artemis the God was in this image. And Artemis was a big deal back then. And she's a big deal for Demetrius, the silversmith that we meet. He made silver shrines of Artemis for a living, little temples, little models. Now, if he lived in Edinburgh today, he'd have a shop in the Royal Mile selling little carvings of the castle and CU Jimmy hats. Now, but when, so when people visited the, the temple and they would exit basically through the temple gift shops, kind of like Disney. Do you know the way Disney just take you, you come off the ride, you've had a great time and all of a sudden you're just, you're just hit with all this merchandise that you can buy. I think that's kind of what it was like for going to see the Temple of Artemis. The people would leave, go through the temple gift shop, buy a mini temple, take it home, put it on their mantelpiece, gather their family around and worship the thing. Okay, worship the God that it represented. And that was Demetrius' business. All was well, business was good. But for the last two years, he'd seen a bit of a recession. A credit crunch had hit in some sense. And it coincided with the arrival of this guy called Paul. Now Demetrius completely understands the problem. And knows that it's directly linked to the Apostle Paul. It's his message. It's this guy's miracles. Now we saw this last week. That Paul was telling people about Jesus. And about how they should believe in him. His preaching was so persuasive as verse 10 says. All the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's a stunning thing to say. And what's more, God was amplifying the message by accompanying Paul's preaching with these extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. And as a result, people were converting to Christianity. They no longer wanted to worship Artemis. They wanted to worship Jesus. No longer did they need their little books or little shrines. Those trinkets meant nothing to them anymore. They were just just empty, meaningless, worthless pages in a book. Therefore, they burned them. Now, Demetrius is able to summarize for us why people were doing this. 
And in doing so describes the content of Paul's preaching. Did you see it in verse 26? Look with me. Paul was saying to people, man-made gods are no gods at all. Which tells us that Paul's preaching of the gospel concerning the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ involved challenging people to see their idols for what they are and calling on them to give them up. Now you can imagine him saying, for example, I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 44, just as we did a little bit earlier on in our service, where we see God himself challenging the idols of the day to speak. Say something, he says. Do something, he says. But they're, they're just, they just sit there in silence and there's no, no surprise. Really, God says of them, all who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? As he says later on in the text, it's fuel for man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He, he kindles a fire with this wood and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal. Then he says, oh, I'm warm. I see the fire. He's happy. It's like he's got his pipe and slippers. And then from the rest, of his, the rest of the wood, he makes a god. He bows down to it and he prays to it. Save me, for you are my salvation. And God is like, what's all that about? That's a paraphrase. Um, what, what's all that about? It doesn't actually make sense to just take something that you fashion with your hands and and bow down to it and worship it and sacrifice to it and live your life with some kind of dependency upon this thing. They're, they're, it's all just trinkets, miniature versions of a bigger trinket. That's what it was for Artemis, even if it is made of a meteorite. Now you can understand why with all of that, Demetrius and some of his buddies in the silversmith society might feel a bit upset. An idol to God might be, of course, something created or inanimate, but a person really attaches him or herself to whatever they worship. So it really affected Demetrius. I think he had some kind of financial concerns. We'll get to that shortly. But people who worship idols have a real affiliation with these things, a real emotion. Their lives are tied up with them. Now, here's why Demetrius thinks that Paul's message is trouble for Ephesus. And he describes the impact of that preaching on three things in this text. On his pocket, on the people, and on the idol. On his pocket, he sees recession. Verse 25b, he tells us. I mean, you have to really wonder in this text as you read it, don't you? Is, who's the number one God in Demetrius's life? Did you think about that as we read through it? Is it really Artemis? Or is it money? I love the way Luke does this. We, we receive no little income, no little business. It's a lovely way to talk about it. That's great English, isn't it? I am no little hungry. I could do with a little bit of food. Uh, but we receive no little business from this. Verse 25, we receive a good income. Verse 27, our trade will lose its good names. There's his concern, money, trade. Numbers, numbers at the temple are obviously down, and that's affecting his pocket. There's his concern. Paul's preaching is impacting his pocket. It's also impacting the people. They're being converted. Verse 26, Demetrius himself says, Paul has convinced and led many astray. And verses 10 and 20 
tell us that he's not exaggerating. People are being converted, changing their, um, who it is that they're worshipping. And then there's the impact on the idol herself, humiliation. Verse 27 tells us that the temple will basically be robbed of its glory and the, the, the image robbed, Artemis robbed of her divine majesty. And with all of that, you can understand why Demetrius is upset. He sees Christianity as a threat. He thinks they're troublemakers. It's a threat to his trade. What if I can't pay the mortgage? I like being wealthy, he says to himself. It's a threat, I suppose, to his friends and his family. Why are they running after this strange teaching that's different to what I believe? This is really going to make Christmas difficult. Wait, no, not Christmas. Some other festival where the family gathers. I know, okay, I was, yeah. Or he sees Christianity as a threat to his God. You know, even if, his, if the, in the depths of his heart, his affection is towards and devotion towards this goddess Artemis, I will not let her go. And how does he respond? He goes on the defensive. He's cross. Now the question that we need to ask is, how exactly does this apply today? I mean, as we preach the gospel... And as we share the gospel with people in our city, we will inevitably come up against beliefs that are completely opposite to what we believe, really. People who believe in an entirely different God. We will confront counterfeit gods in our day. And if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, we will declare with joy that he is the one true God. We'll feel the offense that he feels when people worship lesser created things rather than worshipping him the great creator and God of all things so if we love him we'll be concerned about this and if we love other people when we have a deep desire to rescue them from under the wrath of God we will share this gospel with him we'll see in ourselves a desire to to show up this idolatry for what it is and gently offer illumination and gently offer encouragement to them to consider the one who has revealed himself to be the only God. Now as we speak about this one true God, we're basically calling on people to see that what they're worshipping is not God. And this is where in our application tonight, we're really trying to follow on the example of the Apostle Paul. From Demetrius' own words, we see that he says, man-made gods are no God at all, which tells us, that whenever we confront idols in our day, we have to do really three things. We identify, expose, and show. Identify. What are the idols that we see around us? I mean, we don't see, to a large extent, people bowing down to little statues and little shrines in their homes. But the people in our city have constructed all kinds of idols. Uh, author Ken Sandy wrote this an idol is not simply a statue of wood stone or metal it is anything that we pursue in place of God an idol is a false god it's something that we set our hearts on something that motivates us something that masters us something that rules us so I mentioned a moment ago who is Demetrius's god yeah it's money really Artemis yes but money yes he has taken his affection, his worship, 
And he set his heart on money and having more money. And it's having more money is the thing that motivates him and it masters him and rules him. He goes in the defensive. Whenever that's threatened, this is God. And that's the kind of thing that we see around about us. It's some, idolatry is basically, an idol is something, is anything more important to us than God. Anything that really absorbs our hearts and imaginations more than God's. And anything that we seek to give us, what only God can give, is an idol. So what do we do when we identify those? It could be, even as Ross prayed er earlier on, it can be, an idol could be for us money. It could be sex. It could be power. It could be a relationship. Uh, It could be all sorts of different, it could be, it could be your children. It could be the idea of marriage. There are a million things that can supersede God and take that place of that primary place of affection and devotion in our lives to the point that it becomes our idol we love it we pursue it we sacrifice our lives to get that thing and live for that but we need to identify those things then we need to expose them because people who have idols can sacrifice to them as much as they like but it will not save them it will only drain them we saw that in Isaiah 44 Idols are powerless to save us. Because ultimately what we need as people in this world is not more money and wealth or a range of sexual experiences or the ultimate husband or the ultimate wife. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But what we fail to see is that anything apart from Jesus, whenever we pursue these things as our God, our idol, these things are powerful enough to enslave us. They promise much, but deliver nothing. So what do we do when we identify these idols in our culture, even in our own lives, and we expose these idols we, for being false gods, That ultimately will not deliver and save you. What do we do? We show them. What's the way out of idolatry? Show them something else. Show them the one that their hearts were made for. For the best way to dislodge a wrong affection from your heart. Is to replace it with the right one. That's how uh, Romeo got rid of Rosalind. Do you remember Romeo and Juliet? Some of you have no. Some of you are like. Who's Rosalind? Exactly. Well, in Romeo and Juliet, at the very beginning, you meet Romeo. And what is he doing? He's pining for someone called Rosalind. He's going on and on and on about this girl called Rosalind. To the point that his mate comes along and says, I'm fed up with you going on on and on about Rosalind. We're going to go to a party. There are lots of girls there. It'll be okay. Okay? I'm paraphrasing Romeo and Juliet again. I seem to be paraphrasing lots of things. I do actually have valuable sources that I can verify. Anyway, I'm moving on. Anyway, he says, come on, we're going to a party. And he's like, oh, but Rosalind. I mean, Rosalind, she's just amazing. What am I going to do without Rosalind? And then he goes to this party. Or before he goes to the party, he says, the all-seeing sun has ne'er seen her match. Since first the world begun, there is none fairer than Rosalind, he would say. Then he goes to the party. 
And Romeo sees Juliet, and that night he sneaks into her garden and looks up to her window and says, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, had far more fairer than she. Rosalind who? (laughs) The best way to dislodge an old wrong affection is to replace it with the right one. He who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one for whom and by whom all things were made, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together, the one who is the firstborn from among the dead, the one who is the head of the church, the one who has purchased our redemption with his blood. There is no one fairer than he. Money, what? Relationship, who? Fill in the gap. Fill in the blank. Whatever idol that may be, Artemis, who? These guys are burning their books and crushing their shrines. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus is greater. And maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. You've never, ever been told this. Maybe you think, actually, I am pursuing this. I'm pursuing this career. That's my idol. That's all I'm living for. Or I'm pursuing this ideal relationship. I've been through guy after guy or girl after girl. And it's just not working out and so on. Well, those idols are nothing compared to the one who is worthy of our affection. Our love, our devotion, our sacrifice are all Jesus Christ. And the way that you turn from those idols, which are nothing, and turn to Jesus is through what the Bible calls faith and repentance. So you repent, you turn from that idol... To trust in the one true God. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, right? They turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. It's a great description of repentance. Where does the faith come in? Well, the thing that makes you and God at one and reconciled is believing that when, he, when his son died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died there in your place to take away your sin. That's how. And I would invite anyone here who's not a Christian to consider that truth, that good news, that gospel. Believe it for yourself. You can do that tonight. To discard these idols and trust in Jesus. The best way to dislodge this wrong affection is to replace it with the right one. And brothers and sisters, what we must do as we identify and expose, never just identify, never just, and just say, oh, isn't that a shame that they're all following after these false gods? Expose gently, warmly, through relationships and encouragement. Challenge the idolatry of our day. If you're in a discussion with someone who's saying, oh man, I've just, you know, I've just, I'm really struggling to get this money that I'm looking for. There, there are ways that we can, in conversation, encourage people to see the greater thing and show them Jesus and let's not be ashamed to do so. Because the gospel, when preached in that way, when we share the gospel, it can have a serious impact. That's what we see in Ephesus. We can expect conversions. People will 
identify their idols, they'll be glad that we exposed them and shown them the true gods. Now, Demetrius was able to summarize Paul's gospel in this way. And I wonder if our friends, people we know, the people we've built up friendships with, people who don't know Jesus, do you think they would be able to summarize our gospel in a sense like that? Well, Liam thinks the things that I'm running after aren't really the main thing in life. They focus on Jesus, these Christians. And they say that he died as a substitute for us and then rose again three days later. They would say that loving God is the way to heaven. I wonder if people would be able to say that about us. I think sometimes, and I see this in my own life, that we sometimes try to justify not saying anything. We maybe identify, but we stay back. We can maybe expose at times by saying a little bit about what we believe, but we don't show them Jesus. And I think we can justify not saying anything at times. So maybe in the workplace, we can move to a new job and we say, okay, I want to keep my head down in the job. I want to get a position of influence. And then from there, I'll be a great witness. But 15 years later, we've not said a word. Or in the community, we once said, okay, I plan to keep my head down. I want to, I want to connect with my neighbors, build relationships. It's full of real potential there. And we talk about it with excitement. And then from there, we, well, we, we just, we worry too much about losing those relationships to the point that we might not actually talk about Jesus. But we must. I mean, thinking about this has made me ask, am I clear enough on the gospel that I share and what it demands of a person to believe it, even in relation to what they have to give up? You know, if we're clear, it's really, it's really good to help people identify these. I'm really glad that two or three people were really bold enough when I wasn't a Christian to turn around and say, Do you realize these things you're running after ultimately will not save you? If you hope in these things, it's going to be ultimately futile. That was a real surprise for me. Because I thought the big deal was get your head down, get a good job, get a career, etc. The right kind of relationship. I'm glad that people spoke to me about it. I'm sure you are too if you're a Christian. We can expect conversion. Let's not be shy in sharing, but we can also expect opposition. That's what we see in this text and the the rest of it. And I wonder if that's a surprise to us as well. You know, Christians nowadays often like to, even in pastoral circles, they they like to talk about the whole idea of changing the culture. And I I love the hope that's contained within such a vision, but I, I also think there's some unhelpful real idealism in that. So we actually assume that when people hear the gospel and believe the gospel and lots and lots of people are becoming Christians to the point that a culture in a city is starting to change that people are actually going to be happy about that. I'm not so sure. So if the Lord does bless us with thousands being saved in Edinburgh don't expect pub landlords to be happy about it. Don't expect the owners of the saunas on Lothian Road to be happy about it. Don't expect the retailers on Princess Street to be happy about it. If we're being converted for our idols of materialism to serve the true and living gods. So how should we act if people do react unkindly towards us? If people do oppose us? Well, I think this is what we see in point two in verses 29 to 41. Christians should conduct themselves with the irreproachable manner of a true Christian's conduct. This is what we see in the rest of the text. Demetrius and the silversmiths are upset. 
They do what any self-respecting tradesman would do in this kind of situation. They start a riot. And in verse 28, we find the effects of Demetrius' preaching. The silversmiths are furious, and they begin shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this goes on for about two hours, we see. Now, you can understand why. People's lives have been completely tied up in this idolatry of this cult of Artemis. And now, it's been challenged so severely, it's produced this defensive response. You can understand why that happens. This is why the opposition comes. Let me illustrate this. I love football, right? I, I quietly support Aberdeen. Um, but I love Man United. Because I'm a glory hunter, after all. Though not just now. Now, imagine, imagine a preacher turned up, right? And said, football is a complete waste of time. Following Man United only makes men grumpy. The followers of God should have nothing to do with Man United. I call on you to abandon the club. Okay? Now, some of you are sweating because you support Man United. Is he really saying this? Where does it say that? No, I'm not saying that. But imagine, imagine thousands of Man United fans saying, well, yes, he's got a point. I do get inordinately cross about Louis van Gaal's coaching and the laziness of these players who have more than a week than I do in a lifetime, etc. Let's abandon it. Do we really think they would say something like that? No. What do you think would happen? The place would be in an uproar. Pundits on TalkSport and Match of the Day, sponsors of the guys who work in the club gift shop, sponsors, the guys who work in the club gift shop, would be dragging that preacher into Old Trafford singing, Glory, Glory, Man United. That's what they'd be doing. Faced with the serious threat to something that they have loved and their livelihood, the city they love and the God that they love, these guys become angry and oppose Christians. But look at what happens next. This is fascinating. Paul wants to go in at first. He knows that the truth can defend itself. And actually he's been bold enough to do this in the past to make the most of these opportunities. And maybe he's thinking, man, there's thousands of them gathered in this amphitheater here in Ephesus. I wonder if what will happen here, if what happened in Acts chapter 2 is going to happen here. We're going to see 3,000 people saved today. But his friends think it's too dangerous. It's a security nightmare for him in a sense. In the end, who is it that gets up? The highest official in Ephesus. He is a worshipper of Artemis. And what does he say? Look with me, verse 35. He says, basically everyone knows that Artemis is great. She is awesome. In verse 36 he says, you lot should really be quiet. Why? Verse 37, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, they haven't done anything wrong. Paul hasn't gone in and knocked over the statue of Artemis. He's not caused a riot. He's, in all of his sharing of the gospel and his impact, whether it's in the synagogue or in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he's conducted himself respectfully within the boundaries of Ephesian law. He's managed to present the truth of the gospel in a way that did not involve blasphemy of Artemis. He merely explained his view that man-made gods are not gods at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Then the city official says, if they have actually done any of these things, if they've robbed the temple, 
or blasphemed anyone, then there are proper channels. Verse 40, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting, troublemakers. Right there. We are in, dangers, in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion. Guilty troublemakers. Since there is no reason for it. No reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. You see, Paul is not a troublemaker. The accusation that's leveled against Christians in this regard, even as we see it in the book of Acts here, is, is unsubstantiated. And again, we see this throughout the book of Acts. So Peter and John are, are you filled this city with your teaching, they say. And they're not happy about it. But Gamaliel says, if this is not from God, it will fritter away. If it is, nothing will be able to stop it. What do we see? Well, God vindicates them. When Paul is miraculously freed from the Philippian jail, he has the wits. So when they say, oh, you can go, you can go. He has the wits about them to say, hey, you made a public spectacle of our imprisonment like we had actually done something wrong. Now you can make a public spectacle of our innocence and how you're letting us go. We're not troublemakers. We refuse to be troublemakers. We've seen persecution in the book of Acts, of course, but all the official pronouncements have either cleared the Christians of wrongdoing or else refused to judge them guilty of any crime. And any persecution that we have seen, for example, like the death of Stephen, Father, forgive them, has been his prayer. Not, right boys, get them! It's very different. Very, very different. The message is clear. These Christians back then are not troublemakers. And the application for us today, even as we identify and expose the idols of our day and seek ways to show them Jesus, our great God and Savior, the manner in which we do it is not as troublemakers, but with excellent Christian conduct. And whatever we do, we do it within the parameters, the legal parameters of our culture. So Christians are not to be troublemakers. We're not to slander other people's gods. Not to attack places of worship used by people of other faiths. We're not to take up arms and attack the places where people congregate like we've seen in Paris. We see no need to. We don't want to aim to undermine the loyalty of the public even to political authorities. We want to respect those authorities. Paul, interestingly, in one of his last letters before he died, even from prison, would write to Timothy to pray for those in authority. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Why? You ever thought about why? That, here's the why, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In other words, pray for peace so that we'll have a platform to share the gospel. So that we can live out our lives in all godliness without creating a furore, without creating trouble within the parameters of our legal system, we will share the gospel as good citizens. So the thing that upset the stability of the city back then was not a program to stamp out idolatry or magic. 
but a program that by the faithful proclamation of gospel believers and the transforming power of the gospel seen in the lives of new believers, they would conduct themselves in a manner actually that was worthy of the gospel. And that's the application for us. We operate within the legal parameters of our culture. We don't take up guns. We don't force people with a sword, believe or not. We operate within the legal parameters. Now this is particular application, I suppose, for maybe some of us who work in schools. Where a head teacher says, this is my school, I'm responsible for this. Uh, I want you to come in and do an assembly. Uh, you are allowed to say this, this and this, but we'd rather you didn't say this. You have not a choice in that moment to either operate within the parameters of the authority of that head and honor her or him in that regard, or you can ignore that and potentially ruin that person's view of Christians and confirm the concern that they're troublemakers. But no, we should conduct ourselves appropriately in all godliness. I watched uh, Selma the other day, the movie about Martin Luther King. And in April 1963, Martin Luther King, a Baptist pastor and civil rights activist, deeply concerned about racial hostility that arose against black people. He was 34 years old, married with four kids, one of them only five days old, and everybody thought he was a troublemaker. Everybody thought he's the leader of a militant army who will rise up and take up clubs for the cause that they are fighting for. This is what he said in response. We do not hesitate to call our movement an army. But it's a special army with no supplies but its sincerity. No uniform but its determination. No arsenal except its faith. No currency but its conscience. It's an army that will move but not maul. It's an army that will sing but not slay. It's an army to storm bastions of hatred to lay siege to the fortress of segregation. And even in that, Martin Luther King called for the kind of manner that ought to typify the kind of conduct of Christians, whether we are preaching the gospel week in, week out or even enduring persecution of some kind. The notion that Christians are troublemakers, upsetting the stability of the world, I want you to understand, is an accusation that's made against Christians. It is not the mission statement of Christians. So next time you're talking with someone about the gospel, and they say, oh, these wars are all the result of Christians and religious people, tell them that that's not the case. Next time you hear someone rebut your claims to faith in God with the claim that Christians are all troublemakers, tell them actually that that's not the case. Show them the conduct of these men in Acts. Take them to Acts chapter 19 specifically and explain to them that though they make this accusation against Christians, it is not the mission statement of Christians. Because what we see in here is that the what triggered the hostility of these silversmiths was not a program to stamp out idolatry, but just the faithful proclamation of the gospel that was preached with the irreproachable manner of a Christian's conduct. And we sing about it. You ever wondered what those words mean when we sing, 
our call to war. To love the captive soul, but to rage against who? The captor. The evil one, Satan. And how do we rage against him? We preach the gospel that releases people from his grip and carries them into the very arms of the God who saves them and says, safe. Let's bow our heads together.